Rewind, your week in review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. This program is brought to you from Wisconsin Eyes Margaret Farrow Studio. This week on Rewind, your week in review. In a new lawsuit, a group of unions are seeking to overturn Wisconsin's controversial collective bargaining law known as Act 10. Plus, Democrats' top leadership position in the state Senate is up for grabs after the former leader announces she's stepping down. And a judge dismisses claims that a panel tapped to investigate impeachment did not violate the state's open meeting laws. All this and more on Rewind, your week in review for December 1st. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Well, J.R., I hope you had a Thanksgiving. Same with everyone back at home. We had a very busy political week mm -hmm. after the holiday. And first, we're going to start with a new lawsuit that was filed on Thursday that seeks to repeal the Wisconsin's controversial law, Act 10, that effectively uh, eliminated uh, most uh, collective bargaining rights for most uh, public and state employees, um, state and local workers, excuse me. So the suit argues that the law's exemption right now, which applies to some police, firefighters, and other public public safety workers from bargaining restrictions violates the state's constitution equal protection guarantee. Looking at this lawsuit, what's unique about it is that it wasn't filed directly to the state Supreme Court. It instead was filed in Dane County Court. And when we really think about it, we kind of expected this, but we thought it was going to the state's high court. So this is kind of a different avenue, but it's kind of the similar merits of what we've seen in the past when others have tried to challenge this controversial law that was signed in 2011 uh, by former Governor Scott Walker. We've seen state courts uphold Act 10, a federal court uphold Act 10. This makes a different argument. We'll see if it flies with the courts. Remember, it's saying that even with this favored, protect, this favored public safety class, doesn't cover all public safety employees. So conservation wardens, for example, prison guards, they're not exempted from the requirements of Act 10 while cops and firefighters are. They're saying that's not fair. They're also saying that the unions that backed Scott Walker in 2010 when he won the governor's office the first time are the ones who are exempted from Act 10, that there's something going on there. But with this case, remember we've got redistricting from the Supreme Court right now. We've got an abortion lawsuit in Dane County Circuit Court. We expect to get to the Supreme Court at some point. We have a request right now for the Supreme Court asking to overrule uh, school choice program. Now this, I mean, this is kind of like the liberal wish list. You add guns in there and some business liabilities, you're going to hit the entire uh, agenda. But there's a question of how much can the court handle at one time. By doing this, by going to the circuit court first, you're going to allow that court to build a record, have a decision, and work its way up. It gives time. Also, there's a big question with the court about 2025. Mm -hmm. How much you want to tackle before that election because the liberal majority will be tested in 2025. Ann Walsh Bradley, is up for 10 years, out of court first 1995. If she runs as she said she will, she'll be a formal person, a candidate because incumbents don't lose very often. Uh, Daniel Kelly in 2020, who's Butler in 08, okay, so she's a pretty solid bet for re-election just because she's incumbent with nothing else. Getting a challenger though, we'll talk about that later on. But after that race, you don't have a chance to flip the court again, conservatives, until 2028. And that's if you can defend Rebecca Bradley in 26, and that's in 27. So if the court can kind of maybe avoid too many big topics, not infuriate too many conservative donors, it could give them more room 
for doing bigger things later on. Right, and we talked about this before. If they do take up all these issues, uh, you know, within a matter of a year, it could potentially backfire politically mm -hmm. on them, giving you know uh, an individual who we're going to be talking about a little bit later, former Attorney General Brad Schimmel, who announced a bid. We'll get into that a little later. That could maybe give him more of a playbook to yeah. run on, saying, "Look at all these uh, items that the new liberal majority just you know whacked away and changed completely." Um, so kind of we'll see where that happens and where this plays out. Uh, the, probably the only uh, top Republican that we heard kind of react to this lawsuit was Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. And in his statement, he actually noted that this is just, once again, another effort uh, by liberals to try to do this now that they have control of the court. Um, but given his statement, it doesn't technically really apply to this because the lawsuit is still in the lower courts. All right, moving on to now there will be a shift in leadership uh, among Senate Democrats. And that comes after uh, current Senate uh, Minority Leader uh, Melissa Agard announced a bid for Dane County Executive. She's seeking to replace outgoing Joe Parisi, who said he will retire at the, a little bit earlier uh, than his term next year. So this kind of comes as Democrats could potentially have a shot at gaining a majority in the chamber if the current legislative maps that we, many people know, uh, give Republicans an edge are overturned uh, by the liberal-controlled court right now. So now this goes into who will replace her. Um, there is going to be an election today at 4 p.m., so probably we'll digest a lot of this uh, discussion next week. Uh, it will be over Zoom, and reporters will not be in there, but we will eventually know uh, who will be the one. But here are kind of the three that have been making calls over the past uh, you know, day uh, to try to get some votes. We're looking at Senator Kelda Roy, Senator Jeff Smith, and Senator Diane Hasselbein. So, JR, this could be quite a shakeup in leadership, of course, um, but let's kind of go through each of them individually, pros, cons. Uh, let's start with Calder Roy's. So she's run for Congress and governor, uh, which means she has a good fundraising list, a unique fundraising list for a state senator. Um, she's also, though, run for those offices and lost, and lost to Mark Buchan in a bid for the 2nd Congressional District in 2012, uh, Tony Evers in 18 for the governor's office, and there were at times contentious periods in those campaigns, put it that way. It happens in races. Even in the same team, you know, Democrat, Republican, you still sometimes don't get along. So will she be able, if she is the new leader, to work with Team Evers, the governor's office, on things? Also, she's from the more liberal wing of the caucus. Um, let's be honest, if you look at both Republican and Democrat caucuses in both houses, they're not really conservative to moderate or Democrat. They're all pretty liberal or pretty conservative, just different shades of red and blue, right? But she's from that more liberal wing. Can she work with Devin Lemahue on big bills if he needs a couple of votes, for example, people have asked me. So that's one thing for her. All right, uh, next up is Jeff Smith from Brunswick. So Jeff, uh, he's from outstate. If you look at the chance of new maps in 2024 for Democrats, um, they're not going to be in Madison, Milwaukee. I mean, they've got a lock on those areas. They're going to be outstate. He's run outstate. He's won in swing elections. He's served in a swing seat most of the time in office. So he knows the profile of what you're looking for. He also, though, has been known as a great fundraiser. He's not from those power bases of Madison and Milwaukee where a lot of donors are. How does he connect with that donor base to raise money? Because as any leader will tell you, it's about raising money, it's about message, it's about recruiting candidates. So he's got to work on that fundraiser piece if he's the leader. And Senator Hasselbein, who's also in the kind of Madison area, but from Middleton. Yeah, so a little more from the less liberal wing of the caucus for Democrats, a little more likely to work with a Devin Lemahieu or a Governor Evers. Um, you know, the governor's had strained relations at times with all legislative leaders in his time in office. That happens at times. Um, but she's got that kind of more of a team player thought. She's also been in leadership before 
uh, in the assembly. She served two and a half terms as my assistant minority leader in the assembly under Gordon Hintz over there. So she's got that experience, but again, she doesn't run statewide like uh, Kel doesn't have that fundraising network to build out, but so she's from Madison where a lot of donors are, so it helps in that regard. And it'll be interesting to see how long this vote goes, mm -hmm. I think, because you know there's only 11 of them, um, and you gotta reach a certain threshold, and there's three people running. So if you have one or two votes, it, might not be enough. Um, and maybe they also do something temporary, right? I mean, yes, someone could will eventually be in that role, but if things don't go a certain way, we've seen it before right here in the state legislature, JR, that maybe some of the members of the caucus, if there are new maps, if they get the majority, say there's now 20 of them in that chamber, maybe they do some rearranging down the road. There's an election every two years after the elections. And in that period from when the polls close and the results come in to that election are my favorite days of the entire <laughs> cycle because you have all these people jockeying for position, not just for the leadership, the top leader, but like other ones and they're you know, trading stuff and they're making promises and all. it's just, it's fascinating. But anyway, that'll happen no matter what. And for whoever becomes a leader, this election's gonna be a test. Now, Greta Neubauer, good example, she took over for Democrats in the assembly uh, in early 2022, because Gordon Hintz, remember, left that leadership position. Also, Diane Hasselbein stepped down as assistant to focus on the state senate. But Greta oversaw that campaign cycle. Democrats prevented uh, Republicans getting a two-third majority in the assembly and got reelected as leader in November of 2022. So, it's that's the kind of path you want to, if you want to be successful. Sure. Follow that. If you take over and things go badly next fall and people say that's your fault, that could be a problem for you. All right, now let's move on to the panel that Assembly Speaker Robin Voss tapped. These are former justices that he wanted to seek some information about the possibility of impeaching State Supreme Court Justice Janet Protosiewicz. Well, we had a ruling this week by a Dane County Judge Frank Remington that dismissed claims that that panel broke the open records law. Um, this has been a lawsuit filed by American Oversight. They're a liberal watchdog group. They have been able to get some records about information of whether uh, these uh, uh, former justices have given information to Speaker Voss. We know two of them, uh, 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 former Justice Prosser and Wilcox, they both advise Voss against impeachment, um, but they're still trying to seek any other information out there. So this is a minor setback for them, but they can still seek records. And why they dismissed uh, this claim that this panel, uh, which they call a secret panel because they met behind mm -hmm. closed doors, it wasn't you know in the Capitol or whatnot. Um, he believed uh, in his decision, Remedy said that American Oversight should have filed uh, their complaint and, or waited for the Dane County District Attorney Ishmael Ozan to act on his own. So what he called was kind of premature in filing this. Yeah, it's a process decision, not a substance decision. So right. state law says if you want to have a private enforcement open meetings law, you have to, you can go to a DA and file a request to do that. If you do that, you have to wait either for that DA to decline to file or 20 days. They did neither. They waited five days after the going to Ozan and then went ahead and filed the lawsuit. Now, if you read Remington's decision, he says that this panel, if what's alleged in the complaint is true, clearly violated the open, record, open meetings law in his view. But that's not the issue, it's the process issue. It's, they didn't do it the right way. And for American Oversight, look, this is part of what they're doing is, is not just about trying to get uh, open means violations, it's about being a thorn in the side for Robin Voss, the Assembly Speaker. Don't forget they filed, I think, four lawsuits over the Gableman investigation, review of the 2020 election. Of those four, they won legal fees in three of them. I think all three awards are on appeal right now. 
We've racked up at least 1.3 million in taxpayer legal bills that I've tracked so far. And they've put Robin on the defensive when it comes to this review of 2020 and records. Now with this one, they dumped a bunch of records that showed things like Robin Voss and his uh, chief of staff calling uh, the Institute for Foreign Government, a conservative think tank, a bunch of idiots. These are embarrassing things, right? They don't want this stuff out there, but they, if you can get records, you can maybe put stuff out there that makes things not so great for Robin Voss. And that's, in the end, it's a, yes, they are arguing on principle about like open meetings and open records, but it's also about being an irritant and they're doing that successfully. Right, and moving on to our next topic, even though lawmakers finished majority of their work on the floor uh, two weeks ago, they're still holding a lot of committee hearings over bills that we could possibly see uh, come on the floor heading into the next year. And one of those would ensure that parents uh, are notified of what their kids um, are checking out at public and school libraries. So there was a pair of GOP bills that had a public hearing on Tuesday, and it would apply to children under the age of 16. This follows a very national trend of book banning that we see and giving parents more say in what's in school libraries. Um, but when you hear from Representative Barb Dietrich, uh, one of the co-sponsors of the bill, she argues, you know, this is not about, you know, arguing about these national policies that are going on in other states. This is about uh, giving parents the ability to just have more, um, uh, I guess, more of a notification of what's going on, what their kids are reading. Um, and then, but the problem is what we heard from a lot of libra librarians is that they say this, these bills seek to solve a problem that doesn't exist because currently uh, parents can get a list through their school district of what books and other stuff that their kids are checking out. Um, so those were kind of the two points that we uh, heard on these bills. Let's take a listen from both sides on the issue. We want parental engagement. And our goal in this legislation is not to further inflame the issue, but to bring the temperature down and provide that easy tool where, again, librarians don't have to be policing um, what children are, are checking out or have access to. Um, that's not their job. Their job is to promote literacy. Senate Bill 597 would require that every parent of a student under the age of 16 receive this information whether they want it or not. This could put a burden on parents to sift through so much information that they will start to lose track of what is important to them. What is being proposed under Senate Bill 597 is already covered under the federal FERPA law. It would be fiscally irresponsible to deploy a notification system to all parents when this isn't needed for all families. You saw Senator Quinn, who is sitting next to Dietrich. Uh, he is also a co-sponsor on this bill, and he brought up, you know, maybe rural school districts don't even really, might not have the funding mechanism uh, to send these notifications to parents. They might not have a system um, when it comes to other larger school districts, and that is something that Representative Dietrich said she would might take a look at uh, if they do implement this bill. So this is really about building momentum for it for next session. I know it sounds crazy where it's a two-year session. We're just not even through the first year, but the reality is, they're not going to meet again until mid-January, uh, the legislature. They then have weeks set aside in February and into March, but what often happens is by mid, by end of February, they're done because they want to go out, start campaigning, circulate nomination papers starting in April, all that kind of stuff. And oh, by the way, they could have new maps to figure out top of everything else. So we have a compressed window. There's not actually time, unless it's a really pressing bill to get it done between now and the end of the session. So what you're doing here, the sponsors are, Raising awareness, Dietrich says, about what you can do right now. Parents, you can ask for the stuff right now if you want it. Build awareness of that. 
build some momentum for this notification system, and then put that funding request in the budget in 25-27 and say, hey, some public libraries don't have enough funding. Can we put money aside to help them and help pave the way for this in another year and a half? All right, and heading into our next topic is the governor took, a, I would say, some heat from conservatives largely over uh, an alias email account that was first reported by a conservative outlet, Wisconsin Right Now. And what the email account was named after was a baseball hall of famer. Milwaukee, he was on the Milwaukee Braves, Warren Spahn. Uh, so this practice has been used in previous administrations, at least dating back to Governor Walker. But what was odd about this was the name that he used. Um, and this also kind of raised some questions. Is this legal? Um, you know, some transparency uh, organizations raised questions about it. But in the end, from the governor's office, uh, their perspective was like, look, you know, if you file an open records request, we do give those records. His email is redacted. So it's not like you're not getting information, but it still kind of leaves that window. Well, are you getting that information mm -hmm. since you can't see who it's from? Um, so this is kind of a story that has been widely talked about this week. Um, the governor very defended himself to um, our, our station, CBS 58, asked him about it um, earlier in the week at an event in Milwaukee. And he kind of got a little defensive saying, I don't see anything wrong with this. Um, it's kind of unclear right now if this is still inactive or not. Some people have received bounce back emails. He may have changed it to something else that maybe might be more of a, you know, Anthony for Tony type of thing in his name. But in the end, kind of it's almost people are picking sides on the issue. So if the address you use had been Anthony.Evers or just Anthony, this, this would not been, be yeah. story. Using Warren Spahn, a former Milwaukee Braves pitcher, definitely something that kind of adds a little bit of interest to it. But when you request records from the governor's office for his emails, it will come back with this boilerplate information that says they redacted the address and make some reference to a non-official email or something. From basically saying, we're using a different address than tony.evers at wisconsin.gov. So I've gotten those, never thought about what the email address was because as long as I get the information, that's all I really cared about. And for the governor, the bottom line is, as long as the information is being turned over, when reporters, groups, whomever, state parties, ask for his emails, as long as the emails are turned over, people tell me, there is no problem whatsoever. If, however, anything turns out was not turned over, was shielded from public view, that's a problem. Now, this is also an a, a example of how the partisan media ecosystem works. Fan the flames as much as you can, get as much smoke out there and try and say there's something going on. But I talked to four members of the Walker administration None of them had a problem with it. All of them said we did something similar. Didn't use Warren Spahn or you know, another former Brewers player as our email address, but Scott Walker had one using his middle name. It was done because if you had the public facing email address as his main email account. You're gonna get a lot of emails. Yes. <laughs> it allows you to gonna go communicate with members. So again, long as you're turning it over, it's really not a whole lot there. All right, now moving on to the topic of redistricting. Of course, there was oral arguments last week. Heard a lot of debate on both sides for sure, but we kind of want to look ahead to what to expect, maybe when a first ruling. But we first kind of want to, I guess, recap kind of the tit for tat and the arguments that we heard last week since we were off for the holiday weekend. So let's first take a listen to what both sides had to say, and then we'll kind of move the issue forward. Where were you? Where were your clients two years ago? Because we've already been through this. Redistricting happens once every 10 years after the census. All of the issues that you're bringing actually could have been brought before this court two years ago. That was well before the legislature introduced publicly its map. 
It was well before any party in, this, in the Johnson case submitted their map proposals, and it was months before uh, this court ordered the legislature's map into place. There was no possible way the Clark petitioners could have known what their legal claims were in, on October 6, 2021, when the map was not put into effect for months later. Crafting 132 state legislative districts, with or without the help of a professor, will pull this court deeper into the political thicket in a way that I think is a really bad idea. Do you have a name of someone to help us with choosing from those maps? I don't think you can do better than Professor Persley at Stanford or Professor Groffman at UC Irvine. They have both been repeatedly cited by the U.S. Supreme Court and they've played this role many times. So no real surprises on what both sides argue, Jared, but I think the question is, how soon will they make a ruling? It would be a first ruling. And kind of where does this issue go from here? So what to expect? First, we'll get a decision that says these maps are constitutional or not. You're not getting a new map in the next couple of weeks. Right. So that's the first question. And you kind of saw what's going to be next if you listen to the oral arguments. So if the court rules these maps are not constitutional, which I, I think most people betting on the case think is going to happen, there'll be a remediation phase. The question is, how is that going to look? During the arguments, especially Justices Dalek Karofsky, asked lawyers, who would you recommend we rely on to help us draw maps? Justices are not good map drawers. It's not in their wheelhouse. So what you can do, for example, is hire a special master who can collect maps from parties and evaluate them. You could hire somebody to draw a map. And they asked about who's good at drawing maps, who does this stuff. And they recommended experts around the country, those who did. So we get a decision sometime by the end of this year, maybe early January. The key thing is March 19th. That's the date the election commission said we need a map in place to be able to easily get uh, everything in place for April when nomination papers go out. Now, last year, they got beyond that. They got a final map from the state Supreme Court in mid-April, actually Good Friday uh, last year. So there's some leeway there, but they won it by March 19th. So in talking to attorneys, they kind of have in their they, they think the court the liberal majority has in their mind like kind of a, a timeline. What does stuff need to be done if we're gonna do this to make that deadline? So we get the decision, we go to remediation. The questions are, Republicans wanna have a trial. They're saying, look, we need to develop all these arguments about like um, what standards should be used because this is not a case about whether the map is quote unquote fair, okay? That is not what they're deciding. They're not deciding if there are too many Republicans elected. Mm -hmm. That can be all discussed in the second phase if we get there. Republicans want a trial. They want to take expert testimony. It takes too much time to do this before 2024. Democrats say, oh, we got plenty of time. We got plenty of time. So what's going to happen then? Will it be a trial? Will it be like just uh, submissions, expert testimony, maps? It's a huge what if. But the majority, whatever it's going to be, will dictate how that process plays out going forward. All right, will be interesting. Right. All right, let's get to stock picks this week, and we're going to start with Rising, and it's Paul Buzzle, because he had a little bit of an issue with a, taking a selfie <laughs> of his ballot, but he's rising this week for so a reason, Jared. Ballot selfies are good going forward, well, at least according to one judge. Right. So, look, this happens every cycle anymore. All the time, Somebody yes. goes in and posts a picture on Twitter or Facebook of a completed ballot and says, look what I did, and people go, oh, that's a violation, that's a felony. Technically, it is. The problem is, according to this judge in Ozaki County, is it's too broadly written to apply to situations like this. Let me explain. So uh, Paul Bazell, uh, candidate for school board Mequon Thiemsville, posted a picture on social media of a completed ballot. Two people went to the police and said, this is wrong, like you can't do this. 
Now, the whole contentious backstory about that school board and what's going on, but that's, that's yeah, a long story. They've had some issues. Yes. <laughs> the DA decided to press charges, a felony count, as basically a test case to see, is this still a viable charge to raise? Because in other states, we've seen courts strike down the violence of the First Amendment. Judge Malloy in Ozaki County took the case and said, look, um, this was drawn originally, this statute, to prevent people from saying, okay, I voted this way, now give me a bribe, right? There's no caveat, no additional language of the statute says, showing the ballot to get something. It's just you can't show your ballot. He says, look, how many people vote absentee now in front of a witness and the witness sees the ballot, Very now true. you're supposed to like, you know, cover it, yeah. right. But how many people do that? He said, look, when I was 18 and voted the first time, according to the transcript I got, my dad went with me. I showed him my ballot. He said, did I do this right? I may have committed a felony by showing my dad my ballot as a first time voter. Yes, the state has an interest in trying to prevent voter fraud, but this is not tailored narrowly enough to prevent that fraud from happening. Ergo, it's too uh, broad a violation of, of this ban's rights and dismiss the charge. And mixed this week is Brad Schimmel as he made a formal announcement on Thursday to run for state Supreme Court as a conservative. He was the former attorney general, but lost in 2018 on the ticket with Walker. Um, I'm assuming mixed this week because I think my question, Jr., is whether or not his past views on abortion. No, he also joined um, a lawsuit uh, seeking to um, get rid of Obamacare. Are those going to come back and haunt him in a sense? So let's the, the why now first. Um, we got a long way to go until 2025. Yeah, we do. <laughs> but the court is going to do some big decisions here. Uh, he can weigh in and say, "Look, don't forget about me." You know, talk about those things like. It would, you're a circuit court judge, not a very high-profile job sometimes, so that there's one. Another thing you do is try to raise money. It's going to be tough to raise money in 24 unless you're running for president, U.S. Senate, Congress, the Assembly, the Senate, so on and so forth. But you can make connections and say, hey, um, you guys want to keep me in mind when you're ready to write checks again for 2025. And third, he can try and elbow out in a conservative. Now, Ann Walsh Brad, a liberal member of the court, up in 2025, first elected in 1995, she would be, I believe, 75 right before she was sworn in for a, another term, if she were to win. So you got to wait to be sure she's actually going to run, so she's going to. We'll see. But with Schimmel, he wants to have an open lane to go after Amos Bradley. Marie Lazar, a member of the Secretary's Court of Appeals in Waukesha, says she's still thinking about it. If you have two conservatives, you can split resources, you can spend money during a primary. That's an issue. So, okay, that's, that's the why now. Looking forward, his pluses, he's run statewide and won. He's had statewide funding network. He's raised money. The minus is he ran statewide lost. Uh, backlog of rape test kits at the crime lab at DOJ when he was AG. Uh, taking a, a contribution from Purdue Pharma PAC when he was AG. The ACA lawsuit. These things all come back, possibly, if needed. Oh, by the way, abortion. Will abortion be an issue the way it was in 23 and 25? That is an eternity away from now. I cannot predict anything. But that's a huge thing. And oh, by the way, there's a presidential race next fall. Um, who wins could determine what the energy is like in 25. Go back to 2017. The Democrats didn't run anybody against Annette Ziegler, conservative, in 2017. They were so dispirited by like what happened in 16. Right. But that was a mistake. There was so much energy that kind of came right away. What's it look like in 2025? I have no idea. How about we get through 2024 <laughs> first? But yes. yes, definitely pros and cons of getting out there early, like you mentioned. Um, all right, now let's uh, look at falling this week and the deer hunt. Fewer so, deers are getting shot. Yeah, so this has been going on for a while. <laughs> We're, what's happening is 
the nine-day deer hunt, the traditional deer hunt, is being less emphasized than it was before. It's less of the marquee thing. It's still the big thing, don't get me wrong. Oh, absolutely. But they're bow season, there's muzzleloader season, there are other, so the numbers keep dropping, there are fewer hunters out in the woods. And oh, by the way, um, we're doing these differently. If you go back 23 years ago, there were more than 600,000 deer harvested in, the, in Wisconsin that year. Even in 2007, it's more than half a million. We're killing fewer antlerless deer. It means hunters be more selective. They want the buck, right? Yeah, they want they the used, big guy. Yeah. It used mm -hmm. to be like does, antlerless deer were like two-thirds of the, the kill. Now it's about half. So when that happens, it changes how we hunt. It changes the, the population. Uh, all kinds of things are going on with the hunt that's just different than it used to be. And there's also the worry that as fewer hunters go out there every year and have bad experiences, there are fewer that's gonna, maybe that tradition will die out somewhat. And the issue is more pronounced in northern Wisconsin. You have the combination there of a harsh winter last year. Fawns, I was told, are half likely to survive in northern Wisconsin during the winter, as in the central par farmlands. Uh, you also have the predator uh, issue up in northern Wisconsin. Wolves, those, it's lots of things going on with the deer hunt that is not great, and more people being unhappy coming home from the deer hunt they used to be. Uh, my family got lucky this year, I'll <laughs> tell you that though. So my uncle's up north. All right, well that will do it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Take care, we'll see you next week. This program was brought to you from Wisconsin Eye's Margaret Farrow Studio. Rewind, your week in review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.